Hello and welcome to EPR to Favorite Environmental Enthusiasts, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Laura and I talk about me becoming an uncle. We talked to Dr. Ellen Prager about writing, science communication, and her very cool undersea research. And finally, despite their name, sea lions are descended from a terrestrial bear-like ancestor. But I'm not really sure how I feel about the term sea bears, so I guess we'll keep it as <laughs> is. Uh, sea bears sound so much worse than sea lions, and I don't know why. Yeah, it's like a monster. Yeah, so let, let's keep it sea lion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hit that music. All right. The Pennsylvania AEP chapter is offering their next webinar on achieving a sustainable future together, the future of district energy for achieving carbon reduction goals on Tuesday, March 12th at 12 Eastern time. Check it out at www.paep.org and register by March 8th. Also, EPR will be hosting its second AMA, Ask Me Anything, on March 27th. Save the date for 6 p.m. We will be making announcements pretty soon online, so stay tuned. This will be focused on academia and student advice. So if you are in school or know students in school, please get ready to share it. All right, Nick. I know you're tired from hanging with the kiddo, but it's time for <laughs> sponsor spot ready yeah go all right so you know like uh you know we all have enemies right everyone's got enemies and you you kind of wish that um you could get rid of them and you know we have a new service um it's called uh it's called isopods and so what we do is we take your enemies and we put them in pods and launch them into space and uh yeah there's absolutely uh it's not a crime because they're still alive and um you know it's not kidnapping because they're in space where there are no rules so if you just go to www.isopods.com we will take care of all of your enemies and that's all I've got. I feel like I did that in 20 seconds. I don't know. <laughs> but that's that's me being tired. That's all I got. Public <laughs> service. Where do I sign up? Yeah, I know, right? I feel like that's actually one that people would work would actually sign up for. So there you go. <laughs> uh, for better or worse. Right. Awesome. Nice job. If you would like to hear an actual sponsor on here or be the actual... I guess you wouldn't want to hear it necessarily. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I mean, maybe, wants. maybe, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I listen to podcasts just for the sponsors, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's just make a podcast that's nothing but sponsorship. Uh, <laughs> if you would like your company to be the one people listen to on here, please hit us up. Check out the website at environmentalprofessionalsradio.com. And now let's get to our segment. Congratulations. What's it like being first time uncle? Oh, man. So, um, okay. My brother is having had his first kid, beautiful Aurora Breyer, wonderful, happy, healthy. Everyone's healthy. You know, I think there's some sleep deprivation setting in, but yeah, it was really, really exciting. I would say truthfully, like my, my best friend has three kids. So I've been uncle Nick for a while, but you know, this would be my brother's first kid. It's very, very cute. It's adorable. And seeing him, <laughs> knowing who he is and seeing him be a dad is, is one of the, you know, it's very joyful, but it's also very funny. You know, it's like yeah. I've I've seen him make so many mistakes <laughs> in his life, and you know, even in an amusing way. So it's really fun to see him care so much, and the love that he already has for the kid is is incredible. So it's really yeah. great to see. But you're an auntie as well, right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. See, that's that like it's old news. I'm grown. I do remember <laughs> my, nephew, my first nephew was born though. Like he's the most beautiful thing. Uh -huh. Well, so, okay. Well, give me some advice then. Like as an uncle and 
what do I need to do? What's my, um, my role or my charge, so to speak? Oh, well, you know, my first answer is always going to just be be a good role model. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, oh. uh, you know, I think, cause I think for me, the role of like aunts and uncles is like just a different view of adults for yeah. kids. Like this, yeah. I think at some point kids need different views than outside their whole family, but at first they see their parents and then out and they might see their grandparents, but outside of that and grandparents don't count because they don't act like they're normal human selves. They're like, yeah, you can have anything you want. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they're not good role models when you're little, um, yeah. but when they get a little bit older, then their next round of influence is usually aunts and uncles, cousins. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, at some point they need to have other adults in their life, but you know, you're that first, thing and and especially it's really hard for kids to see their parents as anything but parents right and maybe also not every kid wants to be exactly like their parents or whatever so they need to <laughs> look at yeah what else what kind of what other kind of adult can i be right. um good or bad i mean i had some aunts and uncles that were terrible influences but <laughs> I, don't be, I don't want to be like that yeah. um yeah exactly oh my gosh but it's you know it's funny though so we actually had a um, growing up. We had like a one of our one of my cousins was uh, kind of like our our big older brother. So you talk about different role models, and I wouldn't say he was a good one. He would come back from Germany. And he was over there, and uh, I remember I turned twenty one. So my brother's nineteen, and so he gave me a uh, a bottle of Jägermeister, like officially from Germany. And then my dad turns away, and my brother he hands one to my brother. He goes, "Don't tell your father," right? Like it's just kind of like. And it's just like one of those funny little moments, you know, but yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe like he was fun, but maybe not a great influence. But I also really looking forward to like the stories. Like I love like when my best friend had his first kid, I meet him like when he starts to be able to understand, you know, like he started to talk and speak and he understands what Uncle Nick means. So I, I meet him. He calls me Uncle Nick and then I leave. And he ends up calling every man he sees Uncle Nick because he thinks that's what <laughs> other men are called. <laughs> so I'm very excited about like seeing that growth and those changes too. So it's gonna be really cool. Yeah. I mean, really be a good role model and just be there. You know, I always tell my nieces now that they're old enough, like if you need anything, just call me, you know, because yeah. there are things too that you don't want to talk to their parents about. But, you know, Aurora is not at that stage. So no, not yet. <laughs> Just uh, yeah, a little ball of cuteness. It's kind of amazing, like that this little kid who's just this this tiny infant still like will give you a look. And like, that's like what my brother would do. It's like super crazy to see, like uh, you know, even understanding that you know that's makes sense. It's weird. It's weird to see, but um, yeah. very very cool. Lots of happy tears over here. So thanks for asking. That's good. All right. Well, let's get to our interview because I know you're a little sleep deprived. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Hello, and welcome back to EPR. Today we have Dr. Ellen Prager, a marine scientist and well-established author on the show. Welcome, Ellen. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, okay, we love talking about people's career paths on the show. And like I say, where you are now, (laughs) how did you get there? So it's been kind of a twisty, unexpected career path for me. I thought when I was in undergraduate going through graduate school, I was going to be your typical researcher, professor, you know, that's what you did if you were in science. And that's, I got a lot of advice. That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Go to a high powered research university. But what I discovered along the way is that I really love interacting with people. 
I like explaining science for non-scientists and doing communications based on highly credible science. And I, there's so much need for it. So I did some teaching. I worked for a bunch of different organizations, but found my passion is really in communications. And so started writing popular science and children's books, somehow became an expert to go on air on media. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> um, I do a lot of public speaking, um, yeah. get involved with some innovative projects to bring data and science to people. So not exactly where I thought I was going to be, but it's been wonderful. And I'm so glad it worked out that way. And all the jobs I had leading up to it gave me the foundation that I need and experience and sort of very big perspective to do what I do now. Oh, that's so great. And I definitely want to dive into how those all piece together. But I want to take a, a quick note here. How did you figure out, oh, I love to engage with people. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> I know that's a really good question. I'm not sure. I think I started giving talks with the public, visiting classrooms. I was teaching undergrads for a little while. And no, not only did I enjoy it, I was inspired by it. And I think it's a strength, you know, people really, I always, I like to put a lot of humor into my talks and I make it very interactive. I don't like to stand up and talk to people. I like to make give and take and, you know, make people laugh and ask questions. And, and so it was not just that, you know, I, I think I'm good at it, but also it was really inspiring for me yeah. to see the reaction in the audience, to get questions. I, I've had kids come running up to me and give me hugs after talks about books. And I've gotten foundation grants to give books to kids and their response has just been so good. So it's not something I had to really think about. It was pretty clear that, you know, not only I think I'm pretty good at it, but I really enjoy it. Oh, that's so fun. And it's funny. So I have a psychology undergrad and a biology grad degree. So I always joke that I'm a biologist that knows how to talk to people. Um, But like, that's kind of the same thing, right? Like, or it's like just mm-hmm. this just joy that you have. And I'm like, so that was one degree kind of led to another degree led to, you know, I'm hosting a podcast and I'm talking about science and all this other fun stuff. Right. So you say you have all these other career uh, building blocks, you know, like what about those careers kind of gave you that, that foundation? How did that, how did you, well, you don't have to go through each one, but to give me a couple examples. Oh, some examples. Well, certainly teaching oceanography for C education association. I got to see, what worked and what didn't when you're trying to teach sometimes complex principles to undergraduates and, and some who were not science majors. So, and I worked with other scientists and I could see what effective techniques they had. I worked with the U.S. Geological Survey doing research and that, you know, really helps understand the science, the research process, what goes into coming up with good results. And I was the assistant dean at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School, and I ended up doing work in Washington, D.C. So I got to see a, a global picture about science, policy and science, how it works. And I got to see a much bigger picture than when you're a researcher, you tend to focus on very narrow areas usually. But I got engaged in a lot of different areas. I got briefings in a lot of different areas. So I got to learn a lot. So all those things. And I, I'm much more, I guess I'm, I'm able to look at things from different perspectives and I don't want to say critique them, but for me, it's really important before I tell something to the public that it's credible and accurate. And there's, you know, I don't have big questions about it. And sometimes I'll read something and I'm like, well, I don't really think that's quite true. And so I'm not going to pass it on. Right. So 
I think, again, that background and all those different perspectives really helps with that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And it's funny because reading really informs writing, I think, a lot of ways. And so... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and you are what I would call a prolific writer. And you, you kind of have to be in the science field sometimes anyway. But I mean, you have with you know scientific journals, you know, public oriented magazines, multiple books, all of them are a little bit different, but they all have to have some value to you. So how do you, how do you prepare? How do you write? Because that's always one that I think is really challenging for a lot of people. Yeah. So first of all, you are a hundred percent right. When I get asked by people about how do you write, you know, what, what can I do to become a writer? The first thing is read, yeah. read, read, read. You know, not only do you have to educate yourself about whatever the topic is, whatever, but you also have to find your style. What do you like? You know, what's the tone that you like? What's the pace that you like? And you get that from reading. You can't really get that other ways. It's really important. For me, writing, you know, I don't want to say it was came 100% natural, but I got a really great education when I was young in, high, in a public high school. And then I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And there, you know, I had to write as an undergraduate. And then I, I even went into graduate school with really good writing skills. And it helped me a lot. I actually had professors who asked me help write things for them. So <laughs> that, you know, and that was very technical. Um, yeah. But what I discovered is that I love writing non-technical stuff. And so I'm just like everybody else. There are days when I'm like, oh my God, the paper's blank and I can't write anything. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Where, oh, yeah. Where, where's it going to come from? Right. So, so I have bad days and good days. And then there's other days where you're on a roll and you're like, you know, also you look up in the dark out right. and you've been writing. Yeah. So, but I really enjoy the process. And sometimes it's funny when I finish with a book and it's about to come out or, or I hand the manuscript in, I'm kind of at that stage now, I hand a manuscript. Sometimes I'm sort of sad because <laughs> I like, and I'm a rewriter. I know mm. the first thing I put on the paper, terrible. And I'm all about going back, rewriting it, massaging it, putting in new words, thinking. And when I had one professor, unfortunately he's passed away now. His name is uh, Bob Ginsburg. He was like the father of coral reef geology. And I'll never forget, you know, my first paper for his class came back red marked everywhere. And I was like, oh, and, but he told me, and I'll never, he said, he'd point to a word. He goes, are you sure that's the word you want to use? Yeah. Are you sure the meaning of that word is exactly what you want to say? And I've never forgotten that. So I actually now, like I'll be writing and I'll put a word I'm like, that's not the right word. Yeah. I have to figure, and truthfully, it's kind of fun. Yeah. So oh, sure. So I, I actually, I really do enjoy the writing process and especially if I can make it fun or funny or, you know, somehow engage people in a way they might not expect, I really do enjoy it. But as I said, I also have bad days when I just, <laughs> there's, I always say the juices aren't flowing. You know, there's right. the creativity that it's just not happening. And that happens to everybody. So. Oh yeah, of course, of course. And I love it because it's like, I mean, it's like a puzzle, right? Everything, everything. Right. Like, right. There are days where you're like, I'm getting all these pieces. Or even like when you write out, you have the frame, right? You work on the outside. You got, right. oh, I've got the frame, but now everything in the middle is blue. How, how do I get these pieces right. together? And yeah, I love that part of the writing process too. And, yeah. and like figuring out that sentence or that paragraph and you're like, I did it. Yeah, I did yeah it was funny. You know? Yeah, it was really funny. So when I, I've also written some like eco adventures for middle graders. There are fiction books that incorporate science and humor adventure. And there've been a couple of times when I've written, the, it's, a, you know, it's a story. So it's very different than writing nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And I'll write the story. I'll be all excited. And I remember one point I got my characters 
into a, a predicament where I was like, oh my God, I have no idea how to get them out of this situation. Right, you right. know, the bad guys and the, you know, I think they were trapped on a cargo ship or something. I was like, oh, what have I done? You know, right. like, and so it took me like two weeks. And I remember going out for a run or something. And also, I was like, if I just change these two things early on in the book, I can do it. I know what to do. Yeah. But yeah. it was literally like two weeks of, oh my God, what have I done? How am yeah. I going to get them out of this situation? So it's kind of, it's, you know, that's part of it is fun too. Oh, of course, of course. And so, okay, so let's talk about those books a little bit. Like, so you have, was it your most recent novels, uh, Escape Undersea? And that's the, is that right. the one you're talking about that you had to? No, that was, so I have two series for middle graders. One is called Tristan Hunt and the Sea Guardians. The first one's The Shark Whisperer. And then I have The Wonderless Adventures. And one is Escape Galapagos, Escape Greenland, and then Escape Undersea. Yeah. So that predicament was in, I think it was a book called Stingray City which is the third book in the Tristan Hunt series. But it happens, it happens on smaller scales too when you're writing fiction, especially because the truth is I'm not somebody who makes really detailed outlines and then follows and knows exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm yeah. kind of more of a fly by the seat of my pants. Like, oh yeah, let's see what happens next. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh, that's really fun though. And I can say that the style suits you. I think that's a lot of times people think that there's only one way to do something, you know? And I know you have a career of seeing that there's many different ways of doing many different things. And it's kind of a joy of being like uh, getting that generalist experience. Um, right. So, yeah. Okay. So we talked a little bit about your writing. I really have to talk to you about the Galapagos. Um, <laughs> I've been, and it is one of the oh. most wonderful places in the world. Um, it so, is. so what's your experience with the Galapagos and how did you turn that into something new? So... In the 1980s, I got to go to the Galapagos for about two months to study the impact of El Nino on corals with one of the world's most forefront coral biologists in the world. I mean, amazing, Dr. Peter Glynn and his team. And so I went to help them with the diving and doing some research. So I was there for two months, loved it. It was fantastic. A little bit rough back then, 1980s. Yeah, um, yeah, there, wasn't yeah. much, there wasn't much there. Um, <laughs> but uh, then Celebrity Cruises was bringing a ship into the Galapagos. And I had done some work with Royal Caribbean on one of their ships, building a lab. And, and they, since they knew I'd been to the Galapagos and knew it a little bit, knew the science, they invited me to come down and review their programming and the ship and the safety, because I also do water safety. And long story short, I ended up being a science advisor for their expedition ships for about 15 years, just recently kind of stopped doing that, but mm -hmm. love the Galapagos. I mean, it's not just the unusual mix of animals and some that are unique and found nowhere else, like the marine iguanas or the, you know, some of the birds, but they're so well protected and they're acclimated to humans. And I'm sure, you know, they're not afraid of you. So felines will come and play with you. <laughs> yeah. um, right. Yeah. See like yeah. birds are laying their chicks in the trails and you have to go around them and you get to see behaviors and see things that you will never see anywhere else because they, again, they're so well protected, they're just not afraid. And so you see natural behaviors and you can't touch them. You can't get too close. But boy, it is just spectacular. It really is. And those sea lions, I'm telling you, that was probably the, the most fun and amusing thing. Yeah. Because, you know, we're there. I mean, we're being there and like I'm underwater and doing my snorkel thing and this sea lion. And it, I know it's an audio medium, but it just stares at me. Right. You know, oh, just yeah. rolling by, and I'm like, what is? I feel like I'm watching a meme in real life, like as yeah. it's rolling by, you know? 
they they love to like they'll swim right up to here and they'll blow bubbles in your face. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, and <laughs> so for any of your, your listeners, I'll tell them a little trick. Oh, if you're ever in the Galapagos and there's sea lions that are, seem a little playful. If you actually do a surface dive down and you sort of twist around or along, they will come down and play with you. And you what? can, they will, yeah, they'll somersault and swim around you and somersault. I don't care how old you are. It's one of the best things. I once showed this guy who must have been in his late 70s. And he went down, started twirling those ceilings and swimming around, somersault. He came up and he was giggling like a little girl. <laughs> it was just yeah. The, yeah. the most pure joy. Of course, of having that interaction. Oh, it was so much. I almost brought tears to my eyes. It was so much oh, fun. Yeah. That's so wonderful. That's great. And you and like truthfully, they are extremely playful. You will see them quite literally yep. doing every all over. Yeah. Yeah. So it's you know I think the Galapagos is a place where people can learn how we can coexist with nature. You know, you come away understanding that there's a way to do it better than we have. And, you know, hopefully that's what people come away with and wanting to be better stewards of the natural world. Yeah. And honestly, that's a really good transition, truthfully, to, you know, like, so like the book that you're about to write or that you're about to publish, excuse me, coming out in, was it fall 2024? Um, right. Megalodon's Mermaids and the Climate Change, Fact versus Fiction. So obviously there's a lot of conversation about climate change and about being good stewards to the environment. So before we dive into the book, what does that mean to you? Being good stewards? Yeah. Well, it means a lot right now. I mean, I mean, there's simple things like, you know, not disposing of, you know, disposing of your plastics in the right way, using less plastic. Yeah. There, I mean, worried about invasive species, you know, not using too much water. There's, there's small things, but climate change is a huge, it literally is a crisis at this point. Yeah. But I don't want people to think it's doom and gloom totally. We know what to do about climate change. We know what the problem is. You know, it's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We know we have to cut emissions. We know how to do it. There are a lot of things, and there's actually some exciting opportunities there. So it's all about taking action at this point. It's not sitting back and saying, woe is me, or, you know, this is ter <laughs> terrible. It's, we know what to do. We know how to fix things. We know how to protect biological life, and we just have to do it. So I do think there's an opportunity for the younger generation to do it better. And they have a great, exciting opportunity to make a big difference. And they have so much influence on their parents and their peers. Hopefully, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm hopefully optimistic. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a good space to be. I think it is. I, mean, I am too, truthfully. And so it's like uh, the idea for the book is that uh, kind of, does it come from that, uh, that mentality that you have? So a little bit from that, but more so from the misinformation that's out there. So uh -huh. I don't know if you heard this, but in the, at Davos, you know, 2024 economic and industry leaders just met in January, the mm -hmm. top one of two of the top things they're concerned about globally, extreme weather and misinformation. Yeah. And it's so rampant out there. And so, so many people have misunderstandings about climate change, about weather forecasting, about dangerous marine life across the board. So my partner and I, meteorologist Dave Jones, he and I have written the book already. And basically, we're, we're doing it in a fun way in that we're using frequently asked questions. I should say frequently asked and zany questions that we <laughs> and our colleagues get about the ocean and weather and hurricanes and climate change. And we're answering those questions throughout the book. And some are, some are like, 
pretty serious questions. Some are pretty funny. And so we're kind of taking a little bit of a humorous tack. We're using easy to understand language. It will be published by Columbia University Press. We're still talking about the title, convincing them that's the title we want. Um, (laughs) But we're very excited because there's nothing like this out there. We even have cartoons that an illustrator did that are kind of like the New Yorker cartoons. And some of them have Dave and I like in the introduction. It's so funny. Yeah, We have us arm wrestling and Dave has a bubble of his head said atmosphere. And I have mine says, you know, oceans, which is more important. (laughs) (laughs) There's one in the, in the lightning chapter where we say, you know, if if there's a lightning storm around, don't use electrical appliances. And there's me with a hairdryer. It's plugged in and my hair, you know, smoking and up there and there's, you know, sparks. So we're trying to make it lighthearted, but we also address some really important questions and trying to, tell people in a, in a way they can understand the facts and the realities of climate change and dispel some of the misunderstandings. And then we also talk about the importance of asking questions, finding yeah. credible sources. You know, we, we give talks all the time and we see talks and nobody asks questions. Oh gosh. And is it because they're afraid? Is it because they think their questions are stupid? But right. they're not. I will tell you the front quote, well, it's not a quote because I wrote it, but <laughs> in the front of the book, I, my favorite sort of sentence is, questions are the lifeblood of learning. How do you learn if you don't ask questions? Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of what the book is about. Oh, that's so interesting. And it's not even, I think, just asking questions. I think it's true. But it's being able to understand, you know, like, credible sources, right? When you talk about credible sources, it's easy for people to write something that looks credible, but isn't. Right. Right. And so there's there's that level of comprehension. And that's something I struggle with. It's like, you know, even dealing with, you know, talking with some of my family members, you know, getting articles that they send me. And I say, well, that's, this is interesting. Here are some other things that are also interesting. And trying not to be like, well, you're, this is wrong. This isn't done very right. well. Um, right. So how, how do you get people to see those credible sources? What advice do you get? Well, so, so first of all, the question is, you know, where is that information coming from? Mm-hmm. Is that person an expert? You know, there's a cartoon that I'm just going to leave it to your imagination about somebody asking a veterinarian about climate change and the right. veterinarian is doing some of his classic work. Right. Right. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> we say that's probably not the person you should be asking about right. climate change. And so there's question. The first question is, you know, where's the information coming from and what is it based on? We're scientists. So we base, you know, we're looking for data. We want data, you know, you know, you can, with I fun part of this, you know, we say, okay, you want to tell us that dinosaurs and humans lived at the same time. Okay. We're open. Show us the data. Show us a geologic formation where you find the bones of humans and dinosaurs in at the same time. Right. Show us evidence. Do you have fossils of dinosaurs that had human bones because they were eating them? You know, right. show us the data and we'll have that discussion. And so, you know, the questions of where's the information come from? Who's that sourced? Do they have another agenda? You know, what is it and what is that information based on? Is it just somebody's belief or is it actual data? So those are some of the things that we we talk a little bit about in the book. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which is really great. I think it's one of the most fascinating parts about the science community, right? There's always a need for critique. And I think it's always very fair. It's easy to say, well, we're doing everything right. We've always done everything right, you know, and that's not fair and it's not true. But the ability to reflect, I think is really, I don't know, for me, it's one of the reasons I love it is because we can admit when we made a mistake. And I think that's right. Well, 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Almost as like science is an evolving process. You right. start, you know, one st- state or stage, and as you learn more, your understanding changes. We're continually learning more and changing the way we think about things. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think sometimes, you know, people think, oh, well, the scientists were lying to us. No, they weren't lying to you. They gave you, you know, information on their the best understanding of the data that we had up until that point, but it can change. So that is an important process for people to understand. Oh, 100%. I mean, heck, I have to go back half a bit to what we talked about earlier. Did you say that you built a lab, helped build a lab on a cruise ship? Did I hear that right? So when I was at the University of Miami, we helped build an ocean and atmospheric lab on the Explorer of the Seas for Royal Caribbean. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. So see, I mean, like that's, I had no idea that that even happened. I don't, I, oh yeah, it was great. I'm assuming it's still running. I don't know for sure if it is, but we, we worked with scientists and put instruments on board the top of the ship. And so they were collecting data. We had uh, things under the hull where we were collecting as the ship ran, we were collecting ocean current data, information about the water. And then we would bring guests into the lab, show them around. And we, we had a lecture series. I think that they're still collecting some data. I think some of the programs shifted, but mm-hmm. it was, it was a very novel thing at the time. And it was pretty exciting. That is really cool. I mean, and like I say, you've done a lot of really cool research. And like, do I have to write that you lived in an underwater lab? Did, that, I did. I I lived. I lived. There's a. It's still operating the um, Aquarius Reef Base off of Key Largo. It's about two and a half miles offshore, basin sixty feet. And mm-hmm. I was their chief scientist for a couple of years. But I also was fortunate to do two missions where I lived in the undersea lab for a week, up to two weeks, and then what allows you to do is you get to dive six to nine hours a day down to 100 feet to do research, experiments, yeah. studies. And then after you're done, you go through decompression and come up to the surface. So the fact that you're living at about 50 feet allows you to dive all day. Right. And then you go through decompression at the end to come back to the surface. So what kind of uh, experiments were you doing? Like what were you so on my, yeah, so on my missions, we did one mission. We were doing repeat, sur- very in-depth surveys of corals and algae at different depths along transects so that they can compare them a couple times a year over the years. You could see how things were changing, which mm-hmm. was very important. We did fish surveys, and then we did some experiments on corals. And then one mission or the other mission I did was more education and sort of communication. We were working with Bob Ballas Jason project and we were doing five live shows a day from underwater and mm-hmm. it was really funny because he was in Houston and you know we have on our headset because you were doing the same show every every day five times a day and then they would shift the next day but we got kind of bored so we started playing practical jokes poor producers and directors <laughs> we would we, yeah, had yeah, these yeah. Big, we had these big hookah lines and it'd be like 20 seconds to go live on air at the reef. And we'd all, we'd pretend we were all tangled up and we'd be like, Oh no, no. And the director was like, that is not funny. That's not funny. You guys stop it. So yeah, but it was really yeah. fun. We had, we could do, you know, Q and a with students around the world. We could explain the things under the reef by showing them being underwater and explain what it was like to live underwater and the technology it was really fun. Oh my gosh. I can only imagine. And are you the kind of person, do you, do, are you able to watch yourself after you record no, something? No. Yeah. Oh, no. I <laughs> was so do, quick. <laughs> do, do not make me watch myself on television. <laughs> you know, when you go in, I've been on air, you know, whether it was CNN or NBC or something, they always yeah, say, yeah. oh, do you want to see yourself on the monitor while you're I'm like, absolutely, absolutely not. not. <laughs> no. 
you know, because oh, it's, I am just like everybody else. I'm my worst critic. So right. I don't want to see that. Don't, don't make me do that. Right. <laughs> like, uh, I could have said that better. I could have said that. Yes. Better. What am I wearing? You know, exactly. Yeah. What was yeah. I thinking? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man it's like i didn't think yeah we were talking about like i, I wanted to shave earlier you know and it's just like <laughs> how do you do that You're like oh i have to go on tv and now i yeah. Mm. yeah yeah oh that's too fun but i mean so like, there's a joy though in storytelling and educating and uh absolutely and it seems like you also have a lot of really good stories so uh yeah. one of the things we love to ask about on the show is like people's favorite stories of being in the field doing the science so do you have any particularly memorable experiences or maybe just I know that you probably have a ton. Can you give us maybe one or two stories about you? Okay, doing I'll, I'll give you two. One we sort of touched on already was Galapagos. Um, in the 1980s, when we were there doing research, we had um, survey equipment and cameras. And literally, the sea lions were like, oh, play toys. They would steal, <laughs> would steal our equipment from the bottom or try and take it out of our hands. I actually had it one time I was working. My buddy was in front of me underwater. I was lying on the seafloor. And I felt something tug my fins. And I was like, you know, what is back there? It was, yeah, yeah. It was a sea lion. Oh. So that is one of my favorite stories. We also got, I also got chased out of the water by a bull sea lion who didn't want us in the water. We're in its territory. Yeah. And oh, yeah, they, they, what, the, what they'll do is, I mean, they're big. They'll rush right at you and swerve this way. And dolphins will do the same thing if they don't want you around. And you know that that's yeah, what yeah. they're saying. And you, you get out. Let's see, maybe from living underwater, one of the, Okay, two quick stories. One, there were some Goliath groupers that used to hang out. And these were giant fish, I mean, oh, bigger yeah. than me. Yeah. And somehow they took a liking to one of the technicians. And they would, you'd go out and they'd come up and rub up against you. And they'd like open their mouths and you'd be like, they were very oh, friendly, but you're right, like. Right. Yeah, still nervous. You, yeah. You're yeah. like, what are you doing to these fish? So, <laughs> we had to have a policy of like no hugging the groupers because you don't really want to be touching them. <laughs> Right. So, but then a funny story, not so much about the research, but about living underwater. Everybody mm -hmm. loves this one. So, for some reason, your taste buds don't work when you're living at high pressure under the water. Really? And supposedly, it's the same. Supposedly, the same is true as in space for astronauts. Your mm -hmm. taste buds, they, we don't really know why it doesn't work. Interesting. So, you know, we, we put hot sauce and things. And one day, <laughs> somebody sent us down in this in these pots these special pots a lemon meringue pie we're like oh that sounds great you know yeah, yeah. but meringue is egg white and air which under high pressure because mm -hmm. we're living remember at 50 feet yeah yeah it was white slime it was compressed <laughs> to be like white slime yeah and then oh, since God. your taste bud didn't work you couldn't taste the lemon filling filling of the pie so it was a white slime yellow goo pie we said nope no more pie <laughs> So, yeah, that sounds awful. <laughs> it was awful. But, but, you know, some of the things that happen while you're living underwater are very funny. And they, you know, you're working, if you're doing it right, you're working really hard. You're diving yeah. a lot, even though the water's warm, it's cold. And you're, you know, doing communications and data processing. So for me, you have to go down there with, a, with people with a good sense of humor because you want to have some fun at the same time. Yeah, I mean, like, I think joy is a magic elixir, right? It just makes people, makes things better, you know? It does. It's like even small things, like you just like, you're doing the data processing. You're like, oh, this is so terribly boring. But what if I make the, a beat right. to what I'm doing? And all of a sudden I'm singing and I don't even know why, but here I am, you know? And it's just, <laughs> you know, some silly things like that. So, yeah. It's so true. We really, when Dave and I, when this book comes out, we've already done one talk together. 
And mm-hmm. we're really hoping we're, we're actually trying to raise some funds to do like a speaking tour because yeah. we have so much fun, you know, giving talks together because people don't expect some of the things like, you know, I, I was like, I gave a little bit and then I said, anybody questions? And Dave is in the audience. I said, oh, you know, handsome young man in the back. And he comes up and, and <laughs> right, so right, right, right. he comes up and yeah. like, stepped right in front of me it's like so and i'm like and i'm like behind him going like right 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 yeah you know we have this great sort of stick between us which we just love to laugh truthfully and so we really look forward to getting out there with this book and being able to you know interact with the audience dave is a former broadcast meteorologist so he was on air at nbc four in washington for 10 years so he's a bit of a bit of a ham, I will say, <laughs> but he's great with people. And so we just have so much fun. And what's well, one thing we're really looking forward to is hopefully getting out there and, and you know, doing a bunch of uh, speaking engagements. Yeah. And like I say, some of the people that we listen to this on the show, we talk a lot about public speaking, actually, because it's something that people never think they're going to need it. They're like, oh, I don't have to speak in public. I never have to do that. <laughs> and then you, they say your career yourself, you're, like, you're fast forward. And that's like, you know, a lot of what you do. So first of all, do you still get nervous when you go on? It's funny. I don't normally get nervous, but every once in a while, and I don't know why that is, but every once in a while, also I'll be like, yeah, I'm kind of nervous. And I, I think that's a good thing. I think if, you, if, if you're nervous, it just means you want to do a good job. Right. So it doesn't worry me if I get nervous. Typically, even if I'm nervous, as soon as I get up there within five minutes, I'm very comfortable. I, you know, we love interacting with people on stage. You know, we're always say, ask me anything. Maybe I can't answer it. It doesn't matter. But you think the nerves, if you're not nervous a little bit, maybe, you know, you're overconfident or something, but I think it also obviously depends on your audience, who the audience is. So I still get nervous sometimes, but it goes away pretty quick. Yeah. So then what advice would you give to somebody who's you know going to be doing this for the first time? Their first time in front of a camera. How, mm-hmm. how, what would you tell them? So in front of a camera, those are public speaking in front of an audience versus on a camera are two different things. Yes. Um, yeah. Right. But both of them, you need to think about, you know, what's your message? What are you trying to get across? Practice. If you haven't done a lot of public speaking, get some friends or, you know, somebody that you can practice in front of. And I guess the, but the biggest thing is really who's your audience before you put your talk together, or you even think about what you're going to say on camera or in front of an audience, who are they? What do they care about? How can they relate to what you're saying? What level of understanding they have? It's all about who your audience is. That's, I think the biggest piece of advice is know your audience before you start. And, you know, scientists they love the technical details but when you're talking to the public you usually don't need those technical details and so when you're talking to those audiences it's not about what you want to say it's what they will understand and engage them and that's you know a very different thing i think sometimes you know people learn to give talks and it's all about well here's what i want to say here's how i want to no think about what your audience needs to hear yeah which is a little bit different Oh, it's so, that's such a good piece of advice. Like I've even, I've had, you know, brilliant people, brilliant people talk to me and say, all right, we're going to go out in public with all this, this scientific information. Let's give them every single thing we got. And I'm like, okay, what do you, what do you mean by every single thing you got? So <laughs> we're going to give them just scientific names of all these species, you know, and I'm like, you, oh, you're no. just like, oh, uh, if you say procyon lotor instead of raccoon, you've lost everything. <laughs> like it, you've lost them immediately. And it's just like, uh, it was like, but, but we have all this information. I'm like, yeah, yeah. 
and you can give that to them in like an appendix or something. You don't have to say right, um, right up front. We're very smart, so you should listen to us, which is just, you know, nobody wants to hear. That's right. That's 100% true. And one time I was giving, I was talking to some times, just giving them training about dealing with the media or Congress, you know, giving talk. And they right, said, right, so. Right. And they said, so, what if they cut me off before I get to my point? You know, because in science, you're taught to do an abstract, but you do an introduction, you talk about your methods, and then you get to your conclusion. So I was like, I leaned in, I said, Give your conclusions first. And they were like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. If you, and I always say, if you have a big point you want to make, make it up front and you can repeat it. There's nothing wrong yes. with repeating it. No. But that's such a different way of thinking than what you're taught in terms of science. And I, I actually think it's a real weakness in the education system of how we teach upcoming scientists how to present their data. Oh, that's, that's a really good point. Like, yeah, as a, one of the things even so in my career field, I'm in environmental policy, right? And environmental policy is technical writing, but it is nothing like scientific writing. And a lot of our technical writing is taking scientific writing and making it palatable to the public. That's the kind of the process. right? And when people come out of school, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, I'm like, uh, my first comment before you even send this to me is don't try to impress me. I get that you have a really good vocabulary. That's not what I want. I, if you right. you, know, if you have a one word that is seven syllables, I, I'm not even going to read this. Like, it, it, And neither will anyone else, right? So, right. yeah, I mean, how do we... And I think some of what you're doing is kind of already addressing this, but how do we how do we get better at that, that piece? Because I, I agree with you. I think it's a need. So, okay. So we invest a ton in research. We invest so much in... Like I'll give you for communications, what we're doing with this combating misinformation. There's a lot of funding out there to do the research on where disinformation misinformation comes from. Right. There's not a lot of money to combat it through communications. And so I think we have to invest in communications training of scientists to work with the public. And there needs to be funding. I mean, I, you know, we're sort of scrambling around to pay for what we're doing because we're not promoting an agenda. We're not you know, promoting a specific organization. And so there needs to be more funding for people to reach out to the public to explain science in a way that they can understand and is engaging, but isn't tied into any agenda or a or specific organization necessarily. So I think we haven't invested in it. We haven't invested in training. You know, graduate students should go through science communications training, you know, how to work with the media. And so there needs to be investment in those things. Ah, that's a really great thing. I wish, I wish I had that. <laughs> That'd have been really cool. I would have loved that. Yeah, um, it would be great. Yeah, and okay. So I know we're, we're kind of getting close to the end of time here, and I hate to break uh, and let you go. We'll just keep you here forever. Well, you, you can't, you can't leave. This is your new home. Um, no. <laughs> but before we do that, like uh, we love to ask our guests a little bit about themselves too, right? So not just okay. the science part of it, but. We'd love to ask what people's hobbies are. And you uh, recently purchased a home with a garden for the very first time. So yes. what's that been like? Well, so it's really fun. So I love being outdoors. I swim and cycle and walking, running, whatever. Anything I can do outside. I love it. Yeah. But I haven't had a garden. I've never had a garden myself. Mm-hmm. And so recently bought a home in with Dave in Annapolis, Maryland. And they had the most amazing garden. And this year, this summer, the end of the summer into spring, we had we had to give eggplants to our neighbors. We have a whole row of 
herbs. And it, yeah, yeah. it's, I love going out there. It's like reconnecting with nature and growing things and sustainability and the seasons. And it is, yeah, I guess it's, it's another way of connecting with nature and the outside world is being part of that growing and producing food. And right now we're having problems with the squirrels because you know, they <laughs> say, you know, they say squirrels bury their nuts. No, they don't bury their nuts. They're like digging holes up everywhere, searching for nuts. Okay. Right. So maybe they buried them, but they don't remember, don't remember where <laughs> they buried them. Uh, yeah, yeah. I swear it was right here. But I swear it was right it was, here. It's like, oh, yeah. It's like, I swear it's this one. Oh, no, no, it's over here. No, oh, yeah, yeah, no, it is where no, it's, no, it's over there. <laughs> right. So, but so gardening has been really something that I've, I just love and kind of unexpected, but almost anything outdoors I love. Yeah. So, okay. What, what's the thing that you've grown that you're most proud of? What am I most proud of? Hmm. I mean, you got eggplants and you're giving them away. That's got to be something, you know? Yeah. But no, I, I think, the writing, well, I think bringing science to different audiences in a way that they can under, not only understand, but be really engaged and want to learn more. And, and particularly, some of my middle grade books, I know that struggling readers have used them. Oh. And I've gotten some of the nicest notes from parents whose kids said, they say, oh, they don't really like to read, but they're reading my books. One parent told me their kid got, his son got in trouble because at school, he was reading my, one of my books under the desk during class. Um. And then she said, but he was reading, so I don't care. But, <laughs> right. you know, I've had, I've had autistic kids who I've gone to talk, give talks and they love the books. And then I go home and I talk to them. And I mean, I, I've had kids give me hugs that brought teachers, you know, tears, me to tears. That's probably been the most rewarding is being able to engage kids in learning who might struggle with it. And reading is so important to achieve success in life. And so helping kids achieve in reading, getting them engaged in learning. I'm pretty proud of that. That's that's quite wonderful. And like I say, before we let you go, is there anything we didn't talk about that you'd like to say? I don't think so. I think we've covered a pretty, you know, gamut of things. Yeah, Yeah, a lot. Oh, it's great. Yeah, we really did. We really loved having you here. Um, Oh, thank you. And just let the people know where they can get in touch with you if somebody, somebody wants to reach out. So probably the best thing is, you, you know, you can Google me. Obviously, there's a lot about my sort of professional life out there. But I'm on on X, I've almost said Twitter, on X at <laughs> E.L. Prager um, on Facebook. You know, just Ellen Prager, look at E.L. Prager. You can find me out there. I, I, I try and respond if I, I get emails or somebody contacts me through X or Facebook, LinkedIn, any of those. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's our show. Thank you, Dr. Ellen, for joining us today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. See you, everybody. Bye.